In the first two episodes of this podcast, I started with the issue of strength, virtue, manliness. Virtue is the Latin word for manliness. I had an arc in mind, and it was going to take me in a different direction than I'm now headed. But what intervened was the war in Ukraine. Like many people, I'm sure I have been alarmed and in sympathy with the Ukrainian people and their fight for freedom and their struggle against an overpowering army. And so I decided to rethink where I was going with this, and um, I'm going to do a series now on weakness versus strength. And there's a lot of scriptural material on this topic and uh, a lot of applications in the world around us that we can learn from as well. There are so many questions raised by this conflict. Questions of prophecy, questions of current events and how to interpret them. What I want to focus on is personal application, but I want to use a prophecy to get to open the door into that consideration. And that's the prophecy of Joel. Joel, the fourth chapter. And I'm going to read it from the Tanakh, the Hebrew language translation. Proclaim this among the nations. I'm in verse 9 of chapter 4. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for battle. Arouse the warriors. Let all the fighters come and draw near. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let even the weaklings say, I am strong. Let's just focus on that one issue for this episode. And the Bible is full of insights into how this dynamic and this dance works. For example, we have the story of David and Goliath, where a person who appears to be weak compared to Goliath He's, he's not experienced in war. He is uncomfortable with shields and swords. He has what he has used as a shepherd, and that is a sling. Uh, he knows how to use a shepherd's rod. He says, I am strong. But in the story, as you all know, he doesn't base his strength on his own ability he's 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 been comforted by his victories in the past but in every case he's he's believed that the victories that he's had over the bear and over the lion were something that were given to him as a gift by his creator by his god and that was where his strength came from and that's why he was confident to go up against this giant who was almost double his height so, in the words of Joel, it's like a weakling saying, I am strong, but it's not a weakling who um, is saying, I am strong myself. He's saying, I am strong in the might of the God of Israel. And he's saying that you, you, you giant Goliath, you are only strong in human terms. You are not strong compared to the God of Israel. And that's the whole point of the story, and, it, and we all know how it turns out. And we like these kinds of stories. We root for David, and David's God. 
We root for Cinderella and her birds and mice and fairy godmother. We root for Elijah and his fire from heaven. We root for Elisha and his army of angels. And of course, um, we are all rooting. We are all rooting for the great man who is now the president of Ukraine, Vladimir uh, Zelensky. The whole world is holding its breath, hoping against hope for the Hollywood ending that he said he's hoping for. But the weak do not always win, no matter how much faith they have. Even in the Bible and throughout history, the failures and the disasters and the triumphs of evil are the dominant storyline. John the Baptist was beheaded, Jesus was crucified, and when his disciples say he was resurrected, lies and simple disbelief kept the story from convincing more than a small minority of the world that it had actually happened. Today, there are probably more people who believe that Muhammad ascended to heaven than that Jesus did. Paul escaped his enemies a dozen times and a major shipwreck, but he spent his final years in prison, and in the end, a soldier quietly cut off his head. And even while he was alive, almost begging God to remove his humiliating partial blindness, he was left with that thorn in the flesh, which he called a messenger of Satan himself. Why does God leave us weak? Why are the proud happy, as Malachi put it? To answer that question, let's not start with a Bible verse. Let's start with our imagination and our knowledge of history. You know, God is called the Almighty. Nothing he can't do. The being who can unleash the Big Bang with his fingertips that is the concept of God we are talking about, the Western concept of an infinite being. If you are a believer in God as I am, what makes God seem strong to you? What have you experienced of his might? Perhaps we've lived through a hurricane or an earthquake or a tornado. Any physicist or meteorologist can explain the power of a tornado or a hurricane, and it's definitely not infinite. Or perhaps we've experienced the birth of a child. We've all seen a rainbow. These are beautiful things, but they don't explain a being. They don't come close to describing or illustrating a being in terms of the almighty scale that the awesome God of Scripture is claimed to be. I don't think it takes a great imagination if we Christians allow ourselves to question what God is doing. What is his strategy? Why is he acting the way he does? Why is he, in Isaiah's words, hiding himself? In other words, not revealing himself to the whole world, not putting on display his power to the whole world. Why is that happening? Every human being can imagine a world where a more powerful God is at work, a God who ends cancer, who prevents starvation, who stops wars, who solves the death problem of the human race. 
in fact, that the Christian world has a God who does not do these things, and who doesn't even fix the obvious sins of Christianity, makes most of the world today wonder what is so great and so good about the Christian God. In fact, I would argue that the reason why there is so many more atheists in the world today than ever before is simply because the need of the world is so unmet. Right now, the human race is tipping toward self-imposed extinction. Is there a God who's going to step forward and stop that? That's the great burning question of our time. Before I start in with my answers and, and what I consider to be the Bible answers to these very good questions, I want to read to you a little uh, segment from a book called The Goodness of God by John Wenham. Quote, look at the goodness of God, unquote, says the Christian teacher. But when we look at the world of solid reality as seen in history and in the contemporary world, things seem far from good. There is the long-continuing tale of man's inhumanity to man. Every age has known oppression and torture and the sighing of prisoners. Spain had its Inquisition, Britain its Atlantic slave trade, Germany its gas chambers. Russia, its Siberian labor camps. A world torn by war now lives under the protecting threat of the hydrogen bomb. Oh, boy, he should, he should be writing today with what's happening in Ukraine. Continuing with um, John Wenham's quote, But it is a world still swept by fear and lust and greed and racial tension, it is a world where the ordinary man feels himself the pawn of irresistible, impersonal forces which govern his life. Is it conceivable that a kindly providence of unlimited power presides over it? How can God look on in silence as the bombs rain down on defenseless cities, as widows and orphans cry to heaven for protection? How can God endure the age-long grinding poverty of the Eastern and African multitudes? Further than this, human wickedness does not by any means appear to be the sole cause of human misery. Babies are born deformed, both physically and mentally. They inherit diseases. They inherit tendencies to insanity. Why does he allow apparently purposeless torture to the sick? producing at times not purification, but agonized bitterness. Why does he allow one of his faithful servants to endure torment on the borderline between sanity and insanity? Is this world of praying animals, of parasites, of viruses, bacteria, the work of a good creator? Is it God's design which allows a quantum of energy from outer space to cause some hideous mutation in an unborn child? Men find themselves in a world of earthquake and typhoon, in a world accident-prone, where bereavement and inconsolable grief may strike without warning. It is a world united only in expectation of death, a world to many without purpose or hope, against which there is a deep 
despairing hatred. A good God? Wenham asks. That is the question. That's from the introduction to The Goodness of God by John Wenham. Okay, so when we think of it that way, we have to admit that if there is a God, whatever power he has, he has hidden and clothed in weakness. He's covered in weakness. His own voluntary weakness, apparently. His own inaction, which grants impunity to people like Mr. Putin today or people like Stalin and Hitler yesterday. God has allowed those things and given tyrants impunity to do those things. Now, when we turn to the Bible, the answers are not all that forthcoming either. For example, we could look in Daniel 4, and we could see Daniel make pronouncements such as that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and sets over it whom he wills. You mean the Most High has put Putin in place? The Most High has put Stalin and Hitler in place? Really? That's a tough nut to crack. It's a tough pill to swallow. I think the answer is that God has a plan. He must have a plan. He must have, if he's good, he must have a plan that's going to deal with it. But we're not going to try to get into that plan today. What we want to focus on is just one aspect of the plan, and that is the fact that he himself has chosen a pathway of apparent weakness. He has distanced himself from the human race and has stepped back from challenging and uh, correcting every problem that the human race finds itself in. Let's start with uh, a very interesting passage in the book of 1 Kings. We have here the story of Elijah, which inspired many a sermon in the chapters that preceded this chapter, the 19th chapter of 1 Kings. And in the earlier chapters, Elijah was this heroic representative of the power of God. And the power of God demonstrated itself to the followers of Baal, the false idolatrous god of of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. He offered a sacrifice and coated it with water so that it was completely wet. And then he said, God, please accept this sacrifice. And if you do, please consume it. And fire, according to the record, fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice and lapped up the water and made a very significant impression on the people who were gathered around the scene in uh, First Kings. And so many of these Israelites fell down on their faces and worshipped God, as they had been taught to do as children. And then Elijah gathered up the uh, prophets of Baal and killed 400 of them. But that, when you think about it, is still a pretty small demonstration of power. So now, not so very long after that, um, Jezebel has said, okay, I'm coming to get you, Elijah. And he takes off running. And he runs all the way to a cave. 
and he hides in the cave from Jezebel. And after uh, 40 days and 40 nights in this cave, Yahweh comes to Elijah, according to the record in 1 Kings 19, and he says to him, Why are you here, Elijah? That was in verse 9. And in verse 10, Elijah replies, I am moved for, by zeal for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to the sword. I alone am left, and they are out to take my life. Come out, he called, God called, and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And apparently, Elijah didn't come out. He must have just seen this vision from inside the cave where it was safe. And it says that the Lord, Yahweh, passed by, and there was a great and mighty wind splitting mountains and shattering rocks by the power of the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a soft murmuring sound. The King James says a still, small voice. In fact, so does, so does the uh, marginal reference in the Tanakh, the Hebrew version that I'm reading from. A still, small voice. Very quiet, very small. Now, it doesn't say that the Lord was not in the voice, but the implication is that he was. That that soft murmuring sound, that, that still voice, it says in verse 13, When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his mantle about his face and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Now he was ready to meet God because he, he saw that God was gentle and God was quiet. And it, was, it didn't make him afraid. Then a voice addressed him. The same voice that asked him before. Why are you here, Elijah? That was the question in verse 9. Now the same question again. Why are you here, Elijah? He answered, I am moved. Same thing. He answers the same way. I am moved by zeal for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and have put your prophets to the sword. I alone am left, and they are out to take my life. He, he can't get over this fact that he is running from, for his life from a very determined and uh, capable evil queen. So the Lord said to him, Go back by the way you came and on to the wilderness of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael as king of Aram. Also, anoint uh, Jehu, or Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Whoever escapes the sword of Hazael shall be slain by Jehu, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu shall be slain by Elisha. I will leave in Israel only 7,000. Every knee that has not knelt to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
He set out from there and came upon Elisha, son of Shaphat, as he was plowing, and so forth. The story goes on. Okay, so let's just think about this for a minute. Elijah, this great, powerful servant of God, a prophet, does these these works that are noteworthy and and um, seem powerful. But when it comes to his own personal safety, he has to run for his life, hide in a cave, be fed by ravens, and basically cower uh, without any feeling of inner strength. And then when he sees God, he realizes that God is not in a wind that's so powerful that it can crack mountains in half. That isn't God. It's the power of God for sure, but Elijah doesn't recognize it as the character of God, the person of God. And there was an earthquake in the vision that Elijah saw, and after the earthquake there was a fire, apparently a rampant fire that covered the earth. And... um, None of these things was, in Elijah's mind, a personification of God. They, they, they demonstrated power, yes, but they were not God. God was not a ball of power. God was a gentle voice that could be approached by a human being, could be listened to. A human being had to strain to hear and to understand. That's interesting to me. To me, it says that God himself clothes himself in weakness. He takes a humble position in the world of men. And why would he do this? Let's think about that for a minute. Why would this great God not reveal at every minute of every day, in every situation of life, what he thinks, what he wants, what he would prefer, what the smart thing or the right thing or the wise thing or the just thing or the the, uh, good thing to do might be. God doesn't speak it. He doesn't thunder it. Yes, there are times recorded in the ancient scriptures of when he opened the earth and swallowed up a whole family of people who rebelled against his authority that he had placed in Moses. But he doesn't do those kinds of things often. The thing about miracles in the Bible is that they are rare occurrences. And even the voice of God in many times in history in the biblical account is lacking. God skips generations. He goes for years without giving any indication of what his preferences are and his desires are to members of even of the family that he has chosen to dwell with and live with in earth. In fact, humorously almost, he says to the nation of Israel when they are about ready to embark on their journey through the wilderness from Sinai, where they received the law, to the promised land, God says, you know what? I'm going to lead you, but I'm not going to go travel with you. If I traveled with you during this journey, I would consume you. In other words, he seems to sense that the best way for human beings to learn is by being away from him 
And so he provides that opportunity. He gives the human race the opportunity to make their own decisions without the clear direction of God to tell them what to do next. Why would he do that? Well, why would any parent give children the opportunity to make decisions on their own? Why do parents start giving children at the age of two or three the opportunity to make some decisions and then keep giving more and more opportunities until by the time they're teenagers, most of the decisions about things in their lives are made by the children, not the parents? Why? Well, because that's the way human beings learn. That's how God is raising the human race, and that is how wise parents raise their children. They, they don't boss their kids around when they're teenagers, and if they do, the kids rebel. I mean, <laughs> what, what parent hasn't noticed a two-year-old who doesn't want any help from their parents, even from the time they're two? They don't want help tying their shoes. They don't want help... Uh, you know, going to the bathroom. They don't want help eating their food. They want to do it all on their own. And that's the way the human race is. And the human race was made, according to the Bible, in the image of God. So God has chosen to ignore affronts to his character. He has chosen to ignore questioning of his authority he has chosen to ignore the breaking of his laws, the, pre, the principles. He has chosen to allow people to hurt themselves. He has chosen to allow good people to be punished and hurt unjustly, people like Job. He chose to let Job suffer and lose everything. And not because Job had done something wrong, but because he wanted Job to learn some lessons and be and receive some benefits that come from that. And so, the, the lesson that we want to proceed to understand in the next episode will be, what can we learn from weakness, and why is weakness given to the human race to experience, and why does God himself even allow apparent weakness to be the way he is identified in the world that we are in. That's the challenge before us, and uh, at the next episode, that's what we'll look at uh, comparing Scripture with Scripture. Thanks for listening, and I hope you are in, starting to enjoy good words, good Ramah.